honestly, the unbridled joy and optimism that is students coming out of school ready to change the world. It's like I want to harness that and bottle that and sell it. I think the biggest piece of advice that I would suggest is don't get caught up in this idea that there's a prescribed sort of linear path from X to Y to Z to get where you're going to go. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Design Adjacent, the show that talks about the nexus of design, both today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Benny F. Johnson, and today our guest is Brandy Parker, Head of Sustainability at Pearl Fisher. Sustainability is fundamental to how Pearl Fisher operates, creates, and it's the foundation of all the work in their teams. So in her role, Brandy challenges Pearl Fisher's designers to think about the end game at the start and encourages their clients not to just problem solve based on ease, but on a brand experience and environmental impact. She is revered both by offering innovation and problem solving, but also grounded in deep practicality, which comes from her many years and experience and technical expertise in technical realization. She firmly believes that the future, and really our future, is that sustainable design does not just come down to the materials, but implementing realistic and incremental change through a multidisciplinary approach. By understanding changing culture, continuing to innovate with cutting edge materials and processes that these joining together will be the power of design. Brandy believes that we can help change people's behaviors and encourage more sustainable actions and choices. Brandy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Benny. I'm so excited to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you and to talk about a really, it's, it's not an understatement to say important topic, but to really explore sustainability in our world. It's been a topic that we've seen in many of our conferences and conversations with AIGA, a growing interest in this nexus of sustainability and design. So where, you know, we talk about your role in challenging those around you. What are some of the things that you've been able to do to challenge designers to think about sustainability in a really active way? Yeah, and I agree. That's a really important question. It's a really good question. And I think to some degree, we as a collective are still figuring it out. But my humble opinion is that sustainability and design are inextricably linked. And what I mean by that is if you think about good design, and this could be design of anything, good design is self-evident. Right. Good design is something you experience and you realize, oh my gosh, maybe this has made my life better or it's fit into my life seamlessly. Where sustainability is life. If sustainability is about sustaining, it's about encouraging things to stay living you know, the earth, humans, animals, everything. So sustainability is life and good design is self-evident and fits seamlessly into our life. Then there is a really clear kind of puzzle piece Tetris fit for the two. And when sustainability is done well, just like good design, you don't notice it. Right. And it's interesting that when we think about it, Sustainability is much like design is more than just that act, but it's also about that combination of culture, behavior, and technology. Mm -hmm. So how have, you know, from, from your vantage point, how have you seen that 
kind of a, combination of culture and behavior and technology reinforce each other. I, I pause for a second there because sometimes it's technology that's driving our behavior and shapes our culture. Sure. And other times we, we have entrance points where it's the culture that drives the technology that then turns the behavior. And I'm sure we can make a case for the other entry point as well. Definitely. You know, those are the three lenses that I'm looking through, right? Because, and you mentioned this in the intro, which was a tremendously great intro, by the way. Thank you. But it's more than just a material solution, right? We're all very focused when we hear the word sustainability. Ultimately, we, we think about plastic first, right? We think about a very specific substance. But really what's gotten us here, our societal, our, our cultural evolution, our societal evolution, which is a series of behaviors, right, in time. And of course, technology is a huge factor, a huge piece of that. You know, I like to think about how those things are linked, but I also like to think about how those things sort of stand on their own. For example, doing a lot of work with clients, I've found that technology moves much faster than a human's ability to shift their behavior, right? That is a much longer term sort of change. And so when we're looking at a sustainable design solution for a given problem, Oftentimes, we, we almost need to rely on technology first because that's what's going to kind of happen first. That's, that might be what catches up first before we can expect human beings to start changing how they do things, how they shop, how they live, you know, where they live. All of those things do change, but at a different rate. And with culture, that's kind of almost like the manifestation of all of those things together. You know, I think about the origins of humanity and our move from hunter-gatherers to agricultural experts and how that changed how societies were built, right? And I'm speaking, of course, very broadly here, not on like a Jared Diamond level, guns, germs, and steel, but, you know, much more broadly. But I think about that and then suddenly I start to see this red thread, right, through history where humans have had this habit of focusing on the present, focusing on sort of a macro level in a vacuum, a discrete problem they're solving in the moment. And some very brilliant inventions have come from these kinds of focuses. But the paradigm shift that we're at now where we need to change is also taking into account the future. Now, more than ever before, we have to consider what's going to happen in the future almost more than what's happening right now. And to me, once that fundamental shift starts to change, then we'll see sort of a cascade of human behavioral shifts, cultural shifts, and et cetera. And that's, that's why I'm so passionate about sustainability, because I feel like it, it hits every facet of, of everything. And so it's fascinating to kind of let my mind wander and think about these things, but then also get focused again. I don't know. That was kind of a rambly answer, but... No, no, it's one, it's one for answer. And... You know, we were talking a bit about generational shifts and changes and growing up with the toys that we had. I, I think about that experience in, you know, a couple of generations ago, growing up in a throwaway culture yeah, where yeah. hyper packaging, everything you had, you threw away first in space. And just watching that change from throwaway to pseudo recycle, <laughs> to recycling to our <laughs> sustainable conversation we were talking about just how much that arc has changed in the span of 30 years. Oh my gosh. It's night and day. You know, it, 
I was just having this conversation with someone the other day, like there's an awareness of our relationship to work, right? That's changing as we speak. And that's a, that's a huge movement, probably for which deserves its own podcast. But as a part of this sort of awareness, right, there's almost a demonizing now of hustle culture, right? And you can relate that right back to like the early 80s when I was a kid and everybody was on the go. And now you could have your Dunkaroos on the go. You could have your snacks, your juice box, you, you know. And so all of this material, and of course, I'm talking about packaging specifically here uh, because that's my wheelhouse, right? Um, but you had all of these problems being solved for an on-the-go culture, which led to more single-use, single-serve items. You know, bottled water didn't exist on the shelves before the 80s. I mean, maybe the late 70s, you know, with things like Perrier, but that was a whole different experience than bottled water as we know today. And that all came, yeah. And that all came from this idea that you've got to keep moving and you've got to have your food and drink while you're doing something else. And so what I'm seeing now is a potential to reset that. Are we on the go? Are we hustling? Are we constantly going? Or are we recognizing the value of rest? And you can see how these elements of human behavior now directly affect the kind of products that we might innovate on, the kinds of packaging that we have, the ability to use. People now can talk about refill and reuse of products and packaged goods because it's almost the direct obsolescence to on the go. It's a really interesting kind of conversation point. We think about that hustle culture in the throwaway of the spaces. I, I'm reminded of fast food wrappers being what you saw flying on the street. It's like yeah. tumbleweeds of trash yeah. for, the time, for the time period. That's where you had the buildup in the space. And to see, you know, a really efficient take that's happening with a lot of packaging today where there's less of a waste space in there. As we speak a little bit about packaging, because I, I know that's been a part of your world. One of the things that's interesting is how packaging now itself is becoming a part of the story in the consumer behavior in a way that it hadn't been before, where packaging helps to drive the purpose and the narrative and the story. Talk a bit about, you know, your view of how you've seen packaging evolve recently. And then this nexus, if I can ask two questions at once, of where do you see the future of packaging as it's embedded with these stories? Yeah, I think those are really awesome questions. So, you know, packaging is evolving and you called it, right? We are aware. You know, awareness is a catalyst that starts a cascade of other dominoes falling. And with awareness... For example, 20 years ago, when I got into the packaging industry and design, I didn't know it was a thing I could go and do. I wasn't aware of packaging design as a thing I could be uh, employed in. Fast forward to now, I feel like everyone is so hyper aware of what packaging is made of. I have people that are not in the industry at all talking to me, asking me about, so tell me about this mushroom packaging. And what's PLA? I've heard this is plant plastic. And it's like, oh, my God, suddenly everybody's a material scientist. So not only is there an awareness of the role that packaging plays in a consumer's life, but there's also a deep education that people are getting into because it's become the number one public enemy 
uh, in subjects of sustainability. So packaging is evolving because consumers are evolving. And something I always talk about in my lectures, both to students and also, you know, during webinars and podcasts like this, is that demand creates supply, right? This is the law of supply and demand. And when you think about demand as the other end, it can create supply. And what we're seeing is consumers are demanding plastic-free packaging. And we can talk more about how possible that is right now later. Again, probably deserves its own podcast. But consumers are demanding things like that. Consumers are demanding clean ingredients. Consumers are demanding uh, fair workers' wages through the supply chain. People are aware of the supply chain now. now. Exactly. I was just about to say that. Like You can say supply chain in regular conversation and people know what you're talking about. Exactly. 20 years ago, it was our business school course, right? Yeah. It's like you're trying to get a spicy nugget at Wendy's. They're like, sorry, supply chain. And you know exactly what that means. You're trying to get some toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic. Sorry, supply chain. So, so there is a hyper awareness. And of course, evolution has become a part of that. And specifically, the evolution I've seen. So since I've been at Pearl Fisher now, and I've been there for eight years, you know, there's been a range of what's been available as solutions that I can provide for my clients. And it's sped up so much in the last year. And what I mean by that is like more bio-based materials that are available, commercially available, um, more options, more alternatives to what is customary and conventional. Um, so therefore, we're seeing this rapid expansion of what's, what is available to, to package things in safely. Um, you know, there's still a lag. With the technology behind plastic, there's just not a lot that can replace all of the benefits that plastic brings, especially in food packaging. But we'll get there. And I feel like with the momentum we have, the awareness that consumers have, I believe just like any other kind of evolution we've seen in the natural world, it speeds up exponentially over time. So we'll see that sort of technology speeding up and becoming available faster more than ever before. I, I have I have this question: If whether you're seeing some impacts on packaging now? So we've been having conversations about this two year pandemic moment being an innovation forcing function, and in spaces where we have whether it's online learning or other adoptions mm-hmm. of technology that have jumped several hurdles because of the forcing function of the last two years. Have you seen any of that in your day to day in terms of looking at packaging? Have the pressures of the last two years, are you starting to see innovations that are coming from that moment? Absolutely. And I think where the most growth has happened is direct to consumer brand. First of all, there's a proliferation of them. And with the direct to consumer model, you have a different kind of dynamic packaging that's required because now you have bespoke and shortened logistics chains because you're going direct to the end user. But then you also have this awareness now that people have. There's a cardboard shortage. You're probably receiving more cardboard in your house than you ever have before. And you have an awareness that you need to recycle all of that bulk. So what we're seeing is a streamlining and efficiency coming from these brands that are direct to consumer because they want to use fewer materials. They want to leave less responsibility on, on the consumer, right? Because that's the other thing. It's a direct connection to the consumer where brands at retail may or may not have. It's more of an indirect connection to the consumer. 
But what all of these brands have in common is they're making stuff and they're saying, here, you throw it away. You know, it's here, this is your problem now. And so what I'm seeing is a shift in, in packaging, certainly, but a shift in, oh, crap, maybe it's really our responsibility to begin with. And states like Maine are passing extended producer responsibility bills to say, actually, we're going to charge you if this goes to landfill. So it is your responsibility. Um, so, again, I'm speaking quite broadly here, but there's so much change. There's so much response to people not going out and feeling comfortable shopping at retail. So the proliferation of availability directly to people is huge. You know, Amazon has come under fire for all of the innovations they've done around that very concept. You know, they've maybe done not so great with workers' rights. And so people are much more educated and aware of that. So I just feel like there's a deeper connection to everything. There's a deeper connection to where we get our food, our goods, any kind of product, any kind of thing, a deeper understanding of what's required to get it to us, but then also a deeper connection to each other because of that. And again, I'm kind of going off piste here, but you know, there's tons of evolution happening and it feels almost overwhelming to talk about any one thing, but I'm seeing all of that come together now. It's, it's interesting. You were saying just funny moment, you were talking about being aware of the increased amount of cardboard that we have. So yeah. I'm guilty of that in our household. We had an increased amount of cardboard we've had over the last 24 months. So yeah. in that, being proactive, I reached out to my city to order yet a second recycle bin. And I ordered a second recycle bin because we saw how much cardboard we were pulling through. Mm -hmm. But this will make you smile. Guess what happened when I ordered the second recycle bin? Oh, gosh. I was told that it was backed up in the supply chain. It's just a true story. I had to wait for the second recycle bin to come because of the supply chain. We now comfortably have two. But, you know, even with our practices over the last two years, you can see that change. One thing that I thought was interesting, you talked about brands coming direct to consumer. I've noted and in the past, you know, you would order and the brand story would then go flat or go dark. Mm. If the brand existed, there was a cardboard box, your product arrived, you know, it was kind of a core common standard. Yeah. What I've noticed, and I, I'm sure our, our listeners have noticed as well, is brands taking over the brand story experience from the immersion in the entire, not just the product, but the actual shipping delivery as a point of brand storytelling. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that, because I notice there's that tension. You know, you're not doing a full blown diorama when your package shows up, right, but right. you're moving away from just a plain generic cardboard box. Yeah. You know, and to me, that's very exciting. Brands have finally woken up to the fact that, hey, this is an opportunity to directly speak to consumers an opportunity we don't have when we're sitting on an ambient shelf somewhere. But I think further to that, there's a humanization there. It's like you're buying from us and here's why we're going to reinforce that that was a good idea. And here's the extra value adds that we have beyond this product that you've purchased from us. Because I think that too is happening, right? Brands are evolving to know, okay, I've got to give back for everything that I'm taking. All the resources I'm taking to create this thing, I need to give back in some way. And so there's an opportunity to tell that story too. Or there's an opportunity to tell a story 
Like, for example, just the other day, I finally broke down and ordered Pros, which is like the, the shampoo, the customized shampoo experience. Not that I'm that vain, but, you know, I've got curls. I want them to fly. And you have to let us know. You have to come back to our podcast to let us know how this is working out for you. <laughs> I will, absolutely. But, you know, it's been hit up on my Instagram for years now, a couple, a year, at least a year. But anyway, I got it and all the labels have my name on it. It's all customized to where I live and all of this stuff. So there's this deeper human connection is my point. And I think that Pros has done a good job with that. Um, you know, talking about connection, this is just reinforcing that. We're realizing that, hey, we're all in this together. And so there, there is that. Of course, Elo, look, there are brands out there that are just doing what's trendy and it will fall flat and eventually, you know, they may or may not survive. But I think for the brands that, are doing it from a genuine place, an authentic place, they will stick around and people will be more invested in those brands because a good brand, right, is something you love, something that you feel is something that is, I don't know, you can be loyal to it. You can have a relationship with a brand. And so direct to consumer has just opened up those possibilities to a level that weren't previously, I think, possible. So to, to take a pivot, you know, we talk about direct-to-consumer and that kind of explosion we've seen over the last few months and years. Let's take a look back at our kind of classic space. And how do you see brands and packaging evolving on the shelf, right? We, we're kind of yeah, our experience yeah. with retail is evolving as well. And I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how brands kind of, to, to use old concept, I'm, I'm an old brand marketer, jump off the shelves, right? Yeah. I, another good, another great question. It, you know, it, there's a good reason you're a host. host. I, I see I, this. <laughs> yeah. yeah for the, if the retail is changing. So what I'm seeing now is the retailers that are really on it. They're seeing themselves as curators of brands that do good, sustainable products, etc. So you know, what you're seeing is a new, is an evolution of product and packaging standards for what goes in the store. Uh, a few key examples. I mean, Whole Foods has been doing it since the 90s. They've had a standard for the kinds of ingredients they don't allow in the store. Most everything in there is organic, etc. REI, they're an outdoor outfitter, clothes, you know, all kinds of stuff. They have this amazing, like, quality standard platform where everything they sell and they, you know, they sell third party brands has got to hit certain certifications, has got to hit certain standards to be carried in the store. And so what that's doing is for all of the consumers that love to do all of their education and understand what they want to go and buy, for the consumers that are maybe less likely to do that, but still want to buy things that are good for them, good for the environment, they know that they can go to a Whole Foods and probably not go wrong with what they fill their cart with. Likewise, with a place like Target, they've just launched this huge initiative where they're calling out things like clean ingredients, paraben-free, recyclable packs, beyond just the how-to-recycle labels. And what that's doing is helping people navigate brands um, and feel better about what they're buying. But on the flip side for the brands and how they're making their stuff jump off the shelves is they're being held to a higher standard. So brands now have the pressure of consumer demand of retailer curation to do better, to be better, and also to make sure they're not greenwashing because 
everybody's doing their homework. So, so that's the next level of retail is a way to kind of go somewhere, you know, where you won't go wrong, or you know, you can feel safe buying X, Y, and Z. Retail is no longer like a neutral destination where there's just stuff on shelves. The future of retail is definitely a biased, definitely an understanding of what they're carrying and what they're providing for people that come in and buy. What's interesting is going forward, do you see the advantage swinging towards the smaller brands that are nimbler or the large mega brands? Yeah, you know, it, it seems like that would be a straightforward answer, uh, but I don't believe it is. Certainly a lot of smaller brands, especially the startups, the entrepreneurs, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of ability to be nimble, as you say, and make quick decisions. Um, but it's even harder and more competitive for them on shelf now. And to get that staying power, where I think the big brands come in is they can use their bigness to invent a word. They can use their size to, to steer the ship and, and actually do good. And what I'm seeing for a lot, from a lot of my big brand clients is, okay, we need to reinvest in the community water supply. We need to give back. We need to, so it's like a broader kind of effect, a broader kind of influence that they can have on the community and on the world. So it's not really one or the other. I believe that they're innovating and pivoting in uniquely different ways based on their own context, whether small and nimble or big and hard to move, but have plenty of money to put behind a, a given initiative. You know, I, th I think I definitely agree with you in, in terms of that space, because we talk about the demand each of the organizations are having people like yourself who are growing through, who are leading through the organization and leading in the context in which they are. Like you said, it's very different context if you're a new brand that's emerging for a market space. And then if you're a larger brand that has investments already in spaces, but you each can be committed to the space. So for years before coming to AIGA, I, I worked uh, with the Better Business Bureau. And one of the things that we would do would bring together industry whether it was looking at the amount of sugar in cereal for kids or looking mm -hmm. at spaces and, and finding ways in which players in an industry, large, medium, and small, could work together towards bigger ideas. Do you see that any potential for those types of arrangements for design and packaging? Do you think spaces? Yeah. Absolutely. I, the future of sustainable design is multidisciplinary. So the more stakeholders, the more disparate points of view, diverse experiences, uh, the more kind of coalitions and consortiums that we all become a part of, that we can sort of reach across the industry and say, hey, we've noticed this thing going on. Let's make a change. To me, this is what's required for the future of sustainable design. I was just having a conversation this morning with one of my clients where we were talking about, you know, how weird would it be to have consumer insights at the table with packaging engineering and brand marketing? You know, a lot of companies already do this. So I'm not saying this is unique, but I think the more people see the value in, in that kind of collective approach, you know, and I, and I feel like that's what the benefit of something like a better business bureau is, right? It's a collective 
of people from diverse backgrounds and diverse expertise. And that's where you can really almost poke holes in anything, right? You know, if you're sitting at a table that's look at, with someone that's looking at something from a different point of view, inevitably, they're going to see opportunity where you never would have thought to see it. Again, I'm kind of diverging here, but I guess the point is that when you have these collectives of people, whether it's inside of a given company or across an industry, you have a tremendous amount of power to make change. So I was going to ask you in terms of that, you know, and being a part of it, when, are you, when do you get involved? And are you a part of the start of the conversation of sustainability? Are you while the process is being faced or are you brought in at the end? I am all over it. I'm, I'm there from the beginning. And as my previous role, so I was head of realization, which is production, basically. So making things happen. Even then, I insisted on being there at the very beginning of a project because, again, I saw opportunities with design, shaping the path of design, shaping the path of design strategy from an end goal kind of point of view at the beginning. So I do that very much now as well. And I also have the tremendous privilege of being on the leadership team at Pearl Fisher. So kind of as a default, I'm aware and connected with all of our new client relationships, our ongoing ones at a very high level. But it's getting in there. And even when briefs come to us that don't specifically ask for sustainability, I'm going to sit there and think about what opportunities could we bring back to them that they hadn't thought of. Right. That, that really speaks to what we want at the power of any discipline or space. You want to be included at the beginning, middle, and end in the process and space where there's times that you may see something in the production line that creates an insight in the moment. We do that a lot with my team with strategy and insights. I add to your point, I always have my strategy and insights team at the beginning, middle, and end. And there's a part of that reinforced learning, but also reinforced impact that you got. Absolutely. You know, and some of the best outcomes we've seen it may have been your idea at the beginning that holds through, or it may be that catch on the production line that changes the impact in. When you think about sustainability and package design, what are some of the things that make you smile today as you, look, as you think about packaging in 2022? One of the things that makes me smile the biggest is that most of my clients actually care about it. That wasn't true five years ago. You know, so we can actually have the dialogue. We can actually have the conversation. And to me, that's huge. Again, going back to the point earlier, awareness is that catalyst and everyone's aware now. So now we can actually talk about making meaningful change. So I would say broadly, that's the biggest thing. And I think specifically the efforts around end of life solutions for materials, you know, can we actually avoid an end of life and keep it circular, keep it in circulation. So there's no end, there's no beginning, the alpha and the omega and so forth. But, you know, can we talk about other options? You know, I kind of hinted earlier about my view on recycling and, and, you know, different people are saying, oh, recycling's broken. And yes, I kind of agree with that. But more specifically, recycling just isn't designed. The recycling system isn't good design. You know, people get blamed, consumers, all of us are consumers, people at the end saying, here, you throw this away, it's your problem now. We're getting blamed for not understanding recycling 
when it's different across states, it's different across countries, it's different across municipalities within states, it's not a design system. It is absent of design. So I think that's a major problem. So there's an opportunity for design. So what makes me smile is when we think about, well, what if this recycling infrastructure stays the same or it gets worse? What are our other options? And the biggest one out there is this idea of earth digestible materials, things that safely return to the earth, whether through de degradability or compostability. There's a lot of different things going on there. And that's exciting to me because that looks more like the perfect system, which is nature, where there is no waste. And to me, that's kind of the ultimate goal in circularity. I know some people uh, would disagree with that, but that makes me smile. So when we think about, you know, one of the things we were talking about growing up and looking to the future, the jobs we do today didn't exist or weren't ideas when we were growing up in this space. Right. right. What, if you were to look forward and have any advice, we also have a lot of students and career changers who get a chance to listen to our fun podcast. What advice would you have about people prepping and being ready for what's next? Oh, man, that's a great one. I have such a passion for education and for students. I've had the great privilege of being an adjunct professor. So to me, that deep connection to honestly, the unbridled joy and optimism that is students coming out of school, ready to change the world. It's like, I want to harness that and bottle that and sell it. I think the biggest piece of advice that I would suggest is don't get caught up in this idea that there's a prescribed sort of linear path from X to Y to Z to get where you're going to go. And frankly, for what you can contribute to this world, there, there isn't. I've been on the most whiny path ever going from school to what I'm doing now. I didn't know this was a job. I didn't know this existed. So entering this industry, it's been a constant learning curve. And I think, too, learning doesn't stop at school. And I don't think that there's many people that think that's true, but or sorry, that it's not true. But I just want to reinforce that. Part of where passion comes from is learning new things. And so not being afraid to try something you've never done before, but really, most importantly, embracing the idea that you'll learn something along the way. Again, those are incredibly generic pieces of advice, but it's what's gotten me to this point. I mean, I created this role for myself. This didn't exist at my job. I went to them and said, here's a role I think we can you know, sustain. And here's why I think it will be both good for business and the planet. And they went with it. And, you know, it's just nothing is prescribed. And I think everybody should feel a little bit like, I don't know, the freedom of an improv improvisational jazz musician. You know, there's joy in that. You know, when you see somebody hit this flow, that's possible in every aspect of life not just music, although that's a really good place to do it. And, you know, it's, there's so much power that design has, and especially design students, that they don't know that they have, that they just need to understand they can harness. And so much power actually comes from collaboration. So when you get in that group project at school, I know how sort of deflating that can be, but actually, there's so much power and you learn so much from those experiences. And that's what life is. That's what's like working in a studio or an agency with people. That's 
that has everything to do with collaboration and improvisation and not being afraid to make a mistake. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of advice in one couple sentences, but that's what I would say. <laughs> but, really but really powerful and wonderful advice, right? As you said, it's, you won't find people who will publicly disagree that you should always be learning. Yeah. But I think many times we'll all hold on to, is this really learning? Am I, I'm actually doing the right thing? So I think it's really valuable to have people who are charting paths saying it over and over again, right? Because as you're going yeah. through it, yeah. saying it over again. I love the metaphor of jazz all the time and speaking of the groups and being flexible to understand that there is a framework that we understand. That's how we know what's up and what's down. But then you have that free space for the flow. And success comes with not being afraid to make a weird sound. Absolutely. Because sometimes you're in the mix and it's a weird sound at the beginning, right? And everyone may not vibe with that weird sound, but it's in that that we get to these moments, right? And that's what right now is a weird sound. Right now, we're all being forced to be okay with uncertainty. Right now is the height of that improvisational flow if we just tap into it and not worry about what was or what should be. You know, that's, that is what right now is. We're doing things we've never done before, especially in terms of sustainability with regard to, to, to packaging and, and consumer products. We have to make things happen we've never seen before in order to make all of this work. Right. I think that's a wonderful way to, to think about kind of where I was going to ask you if you had any advice for the future. And you just summed <laughs> it up right there. We, you know, it, and it's, it's really, you know, I delight. I, I asked the question about smiling because I can I, see you and, and everyone on our call can't. <laughs> and I can see your right. face light up when we talk about spaces. And it's just really wonderful to see the combination of your passion, your expertise, and your leadership come out and pushing us to like a better future. And wow, I just want to, I just want to thank you, Randy. It's been incredible watching your journey and the work that you do and the way that you're pushing others to be better in sustainable oh, designs. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, it's, yeah, it's all been such an amazing adventure. And yeah, I've just been really privileged to have people around me that support me and let me make mistakes and make me feel okay about it because otherwise I don't think I would be here, you know, doing what I'm doing. So I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you very much. It, I mean, it's incredible. And you said it's cutting edge work and spaces, everything. I love the conversation about collaboration because you're a thinker, a leader, a designer, but the work you're doing, you're talking to engineers, mm -hmm. scientists policymaker, lawyer, students, you know, you think about it, your entire role is one continuous collaboration. 100%. And, you know, we, to that end, I appreciate it. We all have the same goal in common, which is having a more sustainable life for us and, and for the future. So I will ask you this one last question. What, what gives you optimism about the future? What gives me optimism about the future? Well, I like to call myself a cynical optimist. I always have, you know, and, and you said it in the intro, which I thought was great. There's a little bit of practicality mixed in with this dream that I'm trying to have, right? This daydream I'm trying to bring to life. Um, but what keeps me optimistic is connection. You know, that, that kind of, I guess, very discreet form of collaboration, connection with people. The experience of lockdown has been a milestone in every single person's life that is alive and on this planet right now. 
Never before in history has an event happened simultaneously for everyone across the world at the same time. Thank you, you know, digital experience. Thank you to all of that. But what I'm optimistic about is, yes, it's a pandemic. There's been a lot of horrible things that have happened. There have been tremendous losses of human life. And we have a lot to still learn from that. But what gets me optimistic, what gets me excited about the future is people realizing, oh my gosh, there is actually a collective consciousness. We are all connected. We're all experiencing the highs and lows. We're all experiencing burnout at the same time. We're all anxious at the same time. But then on the flip side, we're all excited when last summer we all got to go outside and play for the first time in a long time. That was joy, I believe we felt collectively. And without being too woo-woo, this awareness of the collective consciousness is, I think, what will take us into the future, what will enable us to make these beautiful solutions for these problems we still face, this deep human connection we have to each other that we're not always hyper aware of. It just kind of lies there just beneath the surface of being awake. And I don't know, I, that sounds kind of out there, but this is where I hold my hope. This is where I hold my joy. And this is what enables me to look at the future without feeling like the world is crumbling. And I can't think of a better way to close our conversation. Out there is where the future happens, right? So to paraphrase Pearl Fisher's site, it's been a pleasure today to spend time with, with Brandy Parker, futurist, strategist, designer, and realist. Thank you for being a part of Design Adjacent, my friend. And thank you all for listening to this episode. We invite you back to check us out on our next episode of Design Adjacent, where we look at design and the impact about the world around us. Thank you. Thank you. Show notes for this episode will be available on AIGA.org. Please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. AIGA's Design Adjacent podcasts and its contents are the copyright of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without AIGA's express written permission. My name is Li Shan Huang. Until next time.